it felt really ominous <laughs> looking at these guys with their white helmets and these three-foot white batons, you know, and in formation. And uh, we weren't sure what was going to be happening. It didn't feel good. <laughs> it is May 11th, 1970, and the Portland police and a bunch of hippie protesters are about to square up in the park blocks. To protect our men who are in Vietnam and to guarantee the continued success of our withdrawal from Vietnamization programs, I have concluded that the time has come for action. One percent of the students are throwing bricks and lighting fires, while 99 percent are throwing ideas. When you close the classrooms, you compress the jugular of a free society. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindberg, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kank Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. December 1969 saw the end of the 60s. It was an inauspicious time marked by several horrifying, ghastly events. December saw the first draft lottery in the United States since the Second World War. The acid-crazed Manson family was in the process of being indicted. The month witnessed the killing of a concert-goer by the Hells Angels during the Rolling Stones set at Altamont. On the 4th, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were shot dead as they slept by the Chicago police which critics across the nation saw as a targeted assassination of Black Panther members. It was the dark side of the 60s. The peaceful revolution was over, and the violent, bloody, gritty uprising seemed to be in effect. When President Nixon announced the invasion of Cambodia by American forces into communist sanctuaries on April 30, 1970, a dynamic and potent culture of protest sprang up on university campuses across the nation. Tonight, American and South Vietnamesians will attack the headquarters for the entire communist military operation in South Vietnam. This key control center has been occupied by the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong for five years in blatant violation of Cambodia's neutrality. This is not an invasion of Cambodia. 
This is not an invasion of Cambodia. Our purpose is not occupied areas. We will withdraw. This is not what's in the forces of humanity sanctuary. Our purpose is not occupied areas. Portland State University was no exception to the rising culture of protest. Historian Doug King Crispin. It is important to remember that activities at PSU we will be discussing did not take place within a vacuum. Disgusted by the Cambodian incursion, students were further horrified by the shooting of four students at Kent State University on May 4th. By May 8th, across the nation, more than 250 colleges closed, and another 400 were stopped by strikes. This combative display against the administration was all-encompassing on campuses around the country. And Nixon had foreseen this response. My fellow Americans, we live in an age of anarchy, full of the broad income. We see mindless attacks on all the great institutions which have been created by free civilizations in the last 500 years, even here in the United States, great universities are being systematically destroyed. The reaction and eventual violence at Portland State University was not unique. Demonstrations against the invasion of Cambodia, somewhat in concert with national organizations, were planned at Portland State University prior to the Kent State shootings. The killing of the four Ohio students served to intensify the actions and fostered an environment to channel and then flaunt anger against the Nixon administration. A student organizing committee decided to close PSU, rallying around a concoction of issues. The horrific shootings by the Ohio National Guard of the students at Kent State the expanding war in Indochina, the captivity of Black Panther Bobby Seale, and the shipment of nerve gas across Oregon to the U.S. Army Weapons Depot at Umatilla. The students decided to center their protest on the nexus of downtown Portland and essentially occupy the park blocks. The park blocks at PSU in 1970 were a very different place than the pedestrian zone we enjoy today. Cars and trucks drove right through the streets on the blocks. The spaces we take for granted now were traffic-bearing thoroughways. The parks were not an extension of the university. They were administered by the city of Portland. The strike was scheduled for May 6th through 8th, and many professors supported it some of them offering support to the level of even calling off classes for three days. Portland State University President Gregory Wolf refused to close the university, arguing that dialogue would be better suited in the classroom than in the park blocks. But the hippies, being hippies, said, fuck the establishment. The university administration, attempting to smooth over the tent situation, obtained permits from the city for the strikers to utilize the park blocks. And the barricades quickly followed. Historian David Horowitz was a professor at Portland State University during the May 1970 events, 
and very active in Portland's anti-war movement. We asked him about the barricades. Well, there were people who had created these little communes, um, and they had taken park benches and other debris, and um, they had actually, the park blocks was then um, a street that had traffic going on it, so they had blocked off access to, to the park blocks. And uh, there were uh, one of the, I think one of the barricades named itself after uh, Richard Nixon's daughter, Tricia. And um, they were, um, an ally was Don Moore, a philosophy professor who felt he was kind of speaking for the barricade people. They were sort of, a, you know, a, a, a real people's element of this struggle. Um, and so, um, and people say they're all night. There was one incident, apparently, I think a garbage truck tried to run over that, one of them, I think, and there was some hard feelings there. Um, but, you know, that was just one aspect of, of the whole protest. The barricades harbored students, non-students, professors, drunks, and drug addicts. Public sex was supposedly witnessed. Political activism sometimes took a backseat to wild partying. And always present was the foreboding atmosphere of hostility, of matters getting out of hand and out of control. These structures took on a life of their own, and they shared little in terms of a unified leadership. Absolutely a symbol of the strike at Portland State University was Portland Police Officer Fresh Hour's report, which points out that one of the teachers had a contest going for the best signs or barricades built by his students. Sing, singing the song of angry men. It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the, the barricades were adopted by Straight Portland as a symbol of all that was wrong with the strike and demonstration. The idea of the barricade was deeply associated with struggle, upheaval, rebellion, and revolution. These themes were then projected onto a physical structure that was easily coupled with communism, an idea many of the supporters of the Nixon administration saw as worth fighting. The barricades and the barricade people represented a target of the opposition of the war in Indochina, something for both the hippies and the squares to grasp onto. They were tangible and near, not across the Pacific in difficult-to-pronounce places. The barricades were located near to Southwest Broadway, these obstructions literally blocked the economics of the ruling power. They literally stopped knowledge from serving the city and drew the attention from both sides of this polarized community. A threat of turbulence and turmoil lay literally before Portland State University. To keep everyone mellow, man, President Wolf decided to cancel classes for May 7 and 8. A huge, unsanctioned party was held in the Smith Center with drugs, public sex, and trashing of the facility in unrestrained view. With the aftermath of the spectacle aired on local television news affiliates, conservative Portland had more of fuel added to their fire. There's something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear Now there's a man with a gun over there I got to be where I think it's time we stop.
stop children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. On Friday evening, Wolf received a telegram from Governor Tom McCall, letting him know that he expected classes to resume on Monday, May 11th. The Oregon National Guard was ready to assist. Wolf declined the assistance of the guard, but was told by assistant to the governor, Ed Westerdahl, that McCall would deploy them to Portland State University if he felt it necessary. McCall was not fucking around. He sent out a telegram entitled, Special Message to Oregonians on Kent State University Tragedy. And it's a shocking message. As a response to students and, quote, college officials' requests for memorial services to the fallen students, McCall takes the time to say that responsible reflection is warranted. But in summing up the communication, he stresses that he is willing to use all authority of the office to maintain order on Oregon's campuses, including the use of the Oregon State Police and Oregon National Guard. The image of the governor that emerges from this missive is one of disconnectedness, daftness, and utter disregard for letting things mellow out a bit. McCall's response makes for a surprising and bizarre document. But within the context of the era, the telegram is not as unusual as one may think. Historian Doug Kent Crispin. National Guard troops were deployed to 21 campuses in 16 states. 30 ROTC buildings were burned or bombed that first week of May, including the one at Oregon State University in Corvallis. To some, the revolution appeared to have begun, and McCall was no stranger to these thoughts. We are in danger of becoming a society that could commit suicide. A society that seems to be ripping itself apart just for the masochistic pleasure of seeing blood. Showing his thinly veiled fear for the fragility of our society, in this telegram he also stated his belief that America is in travail. A violent revolution. A collapse of society a war of the two predominant global ideologies spreading across the streets of America, across the counties of Oregon, was at hand. This was heady stuff, and no one was sure what the next morning would bring. With the destruction of a Greenwich Village brownstone in March of 1970 after a failed bomb construction by the Weather Underground organization, it was difficult to believe that revolutionaries had not brought the war home. The threat to the social order as is was authentic, material, and real. The barricades in the park blocks in May 1970 represented this societal existential condition. paranoically the viable possibility of an existing police state. 
The dark, heavy air of that late May afternoon carried all the forebodings of repressive brutality. Monday, May 11, saw the resumption of classes at Portland State University, but it was hardly business as usual. Bowing to public pressure, including a march on City Hall by students opposed to the barricades, Portland's Mayor Terry Shrunk decided enough was enough. Backed up by Portland police officers, city sanitation employees moved into the park blocks with trucks and began to dismantle the barricades. Police reports of the incident helped demonstrate how odd the scene was to the peace officers. Weirdness was ever-present as they moved through the park blocks. Police officer Frey wrote that, I was repeatedly subjected to some of the worst verbal abuses that I have ever heard. And I might add that these were heard from young female-type individuals. A Jesus was in attendance at the Smith Student Union. An officer wrote that one subject, dressed in what appeared to be a loincloth, standing in front of a cross, and accompanied by a brunette who was dressed only in a black slip, they were reading scriptures from the Bible. They were in the company of raw egg-throwing protesters. Amongst them was one girl of blonde hair, which I observed to unbutton her blouse and was wearing no brassiere. <laughs> Another female protester, adorned with rectangular glasses, was heard to tell an officer, Fuck me, and then I'll have your baby, and then I'll raise it and teach it to hate you. We had decided, um, some of the strike leaders had decided that we would, um, in order to dramatize the centrality of the medical tent you know, to our protest, uh, that we would uh, commit an act of civil disobedience and we would sit down and protest and subject ourselves to arrest in order to dramatize the centrality of, uh, of the medical tent. And, um, you know, there was confusion, as you probably know, as to whether the city had ordered uh, the tent to be taken down or not. Um, and there was a lot of miscommunication. And um, the strikers were under the impression that they had their permit extended, but the commissioner of parks, Frank Ivancy, was determined um, to act unilaterally. And so um, we thought this was unfair, and so we were going to gather. And we gathered, I think we were standing in front of the hospital tent. And um, the, the, the tactical squad marched in formation and then someone ordered, the leader, I guess, ordered us to disband or be arrested. And I think we booed or something like that. <laughs> or maybe started yelling, Heil Hitler, I'm not quite sure at what point that happened. And uh, then they methodically moved in and they started just basically clubbing people, very methodically. and. Um, I was in the middle of that, and um, I was trying to retreat with a certain amount of dignity. And so I was retreating as slowly as I could, and I think one of the batons just grazed my thigh, just 
oh, almost no contact, you know, because I was trying to move as slowly as I could, but I was retreating. There was a, a man next to me, a young man next to me, I don't know who he was, but he asserted himself and started attacking the cop who was in front of us. And the next thing I saw was the cop took his baton and knocked it on the top of the head of this guy. It was like a Mickey Mouse movie. And the guy crumbled to the ground. You know, I thought this kid was stupid for, for doing that. It was totally provocative, you know. Of course, the cop, he was attacking the cop in, the, in defense. The cop knocked him on the head, and the kid crumbled to the ground. Well, we had been informed there would be a, a medical team inside Smith Center, and I felt morally responsible to grab this guy and get him to for medical attention. And so I, I literally dragged him <laughs> into Smith Center. I don't know how I got him all the way up the steps and everything. And... So by the time I came back to the bar front, it was all over. <laughs> That's all I saw. <laughs> I was kind of angry. <laughs> and then we gathered, uh, people were gathering um, on, I think, what's now Montgomery Street and facing off to the police. And then we were yelling, Sig Heil. And there is a photograph of me from the vanguard of the time. I'm in my boots and my veins are sticking out and I'm screaming. <laughs> yeah. Not my proudest moment, you know. The man next to Horowitz was not the only confrontational hippie. Strikers began to throw objects at the police. Twenty-seven protesters, eleven of them Portland State University students, were hospitalized after the melee. This bloody violence would have a huge impact on a decision Governor Tom McCall would make just a few weeks later. Psst, listen to our Vortex One podcast. The strikers within the park blocks in May 1970 were not all love-bearing PSU students hugging each other and distributing flowers. There were provocateurs. There were local high school kids getting high, hangers-on, drug addicts, and people who came into Portland just to party and fight the pigs, man. This was political violence, flipping the bird to the administrations, including university, city, state, and national. It was occupying and vandalizing the student union, taking drugs and blocking the traffic around the academy to shut everything down. The strikers were violent. Many had weapons. Many threw stones, bottles, and chunks of concrete at the police. Professor Horowitz describes what he did directly after the melee. Then I went up to uh, the history department. I was pretty shaken up by it all, you know. And we had an old professor here who taught... uh, Asian history, um, he was not necessarily, I don't think he was necessarily a hawk in the war, but he didn't think much of um, the student movement. And he told someone that, who related to me, those damn anarchists got what they deserved in the park lots, you know. I was kind of amazed to hear that, you know, from a fellow faculty person, you know. Yeah, definitely. But it, it's not too far off of what many in Portland felt at yeah, the time, right. correct? I mean, oh, definitely, no. You know, I, I've had some perspective, you know, on, on these matters since then. And I, I do think, and, and things I've read as a, as a historian of the time, um, Americans mainly, uh, there were a lot of surveys that showed that um, majorities of Americans by 1968 and 1972 were opposed to the war, but they were also opposed to the anti-war movement. That is just a fact. Yeah, yeah. People at the, from the Chicago demonstration in 1968, and, you know, it was like 10 to 1 pluralities sided with the police rather 
the students and the media, as it turns out. <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, things I've read since, I didn't realize it at the time, but um, a lot of historians have suggested that to many Americans, the anti-war movement was a sign of the moral decline of the nation, you know, not standing by the country. You know, as Merle Haggard would put it, you know, when you're putting down my country hoss, you're, you're walking on the fighting side of me, you know. <laughs> Um, so I, I think that uh, this was a kind of collective punishment, and people's impatience, you know, at the ingratitude of students who were getting this education, some of it at public expense, a lot more at public <laughs> expense back then, who were, you know, ungrateful, uh, who thought they were better, morally superior to other people, you know, and there was a lot of that, you know, kind of animosity, and, you know, we kind of played right into it, you know. 42 years later, almost to the day. Professor David Horowitz provides us ass-kickers with a little historical perspective on May 11, 1970. I do think, you know, when I'm looking back on it, that I think that, in retrospect, I mean, our opposition to the war was completely warranted. You know, I have no question about that. It's the tactics that we used, you know. And I was totally carried away with it myself. Um... You know, at one point, uh, we were stopping traffic on Broadway, you know, as a sign. I mean, people have to go to work, they have to pick up their families. Why are we taking it out on ordinary people? You know, that, that was misplaced. We were so angry, you know, we were so frustrated. But it was tactically wrong, you know. And I kind of think that making the medical tent the symbolic rallying point made the whole thing about us and our right to have this facility rather than about the war. And, you know, I have similar feelings about, you know, the Occupy movement, when it became a thing of, we have the right to camp, o camp out overnight. That's not the issue. The issue is what's happening to the American people, you know, with the dominance of big money and politics and Wall Street. You know, that's the issue, not whether you have a right to sleep in the park as a protest, you know? And you, you, you can't make a movement about yourself. It has to be about the people. And, you know, looking back on our activities, I, I kind of feel that... Um, we, well, we got carried away by promotion, but I think we've seen this close tactics. As I look back on it now, you know, with hindsight. You know. I was just a little boy. I threw away all of my action tours while I became obsessed with operation. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-ass Oregon history is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more kick-ass Oregon history in your life? Learn more at ORHistory.com.
Just don't be fooled by Doug's smooth tones. He'll have your baby and raise it to hate you, or at least have an historian's detachment to you. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. Shoot right through with rays of dark matter just before they kick out. They kick out the orhistory.com